Next speaker just before lunch is Willem Klaassen. Uh, he's currently in Swiss in Zurich, living in Zurich. Uh, but he's got extensive ex experience in the South African healthcare um, environment before that. Um, and he'll be speaking about sort of medical insurance, but around Africa internationally. Thanks, Willem. Uh, I was going to say good morning, but it's already good afternoon. And uh, it's just what happens when you have such exciting um, topics to discuss. Um, having, having spent quite a bit of time now in international markets, it's really nice for me to listen again to just the level of debate and the quality of, of knowledge that's in this, in this room. Um, seriously, I mean, in terms of just markets out there, South Africa is an incredible market in the health insurance space. Um, some may say that the U.S. market is more sophisticated. I wonder even about that. It's very concentrated, it's very focused. But initially, when I, when I introduced myself to people from the international environment, I wouldn't say that I'm from South Africa, because my reasoning was that people will think, oh, okay, that's, that's Africa. Um, I quickly learned to actually state upfront that I'm from South Africa, because there's a lot of respect, actually, for the skill set in South Africa, and I guess it's shown again this morning. So I'm going to talk not about South Africa, just to give a bit of a perspective from what we've seen in other parts of the world, um, and, and the nice thing is that it touches on quite a few of the topics that I've heard this morning. Quite a few of the questions are also addressed to some extent by, by what we've seen. So why are we talking about low-income insurance in the first place? And I'm going to concentrate on insurance. So, so why are insurers across the world and reinsurers interested in low-income insurance in the first place? There's a lot of people that want to fish in the sea and they want to be part of this business. And the reason is fairly obvious. I mean, it's small fish we're talking about, but if you put them all together, there's a good catch there. So there's, in theory, a huge market out there. There's millions and millions of people that need cover. So there's money to be made, is the, is the thinking. But it's quite difficult, and it's, it's not easy to do that. I mean, let's forget about, for now, the, the social imperative that you have always. It's just, you know, why do people want to, from a financial perspective, be in this market? So I'm going to approach this topic from uh, an example of four markets. Now, I want to start to say that the first market I'm mentioning there is Africa. I'm the first to say Africa is not one market. Um, I have to say that fairly often to people. Um, it's a variety of markets, but I'll touch on some of the markets there. And I want to talk more from the framework of saying what are the different approaches that countries and governments take to um, use the insurance sector to address low-income markets. So the first, first one would be in terms of a, a light regulation or just standard insurance company regulation. And for that, I'm going to use the example of, of African markets in general. Um, second one is a low-income environment that's driven by the government themselves. And then I'm going to talk about an example from India. Then uh, the one that's interesting in the context of what we've heard this morning, in Turkey, a low-income framework. So not detail-driven, but really a, just a framework that's put on. And then lastly, um, Brazil, which is an interesting market, a lot of similarities with South Africa. In their case, they have a no low-income fr framework, but health insurance is strongly regulated in that market. So let's start with Africa. So we've said that's an example for market where you have light regulation or standard insurance regulation. So I start with a caveat again. 
That's not the case in all markets in Africa. I mean, South Africa is part of Africa. Um, but not only South Africa, you get a, quite a bit of Western Africa that's fairly heavily regulated in terms of medical insurance um, and, and that kind of principles. But we see the most examples or the nicest examples for light regulation if you look in Africa, particularly in East Africa, where we've seen a lot of interesting thing happen, things happening. So the main ingredient or the key characteristic here is that there's a freedom of benefit design and rating factors. So people can, as long as they comply with basic insurance principles, they have solvency in place, they can set rating factors as they want to do it, free market that's operating in that side. Um, you don't even always have to have the solvency requirements. I mean, a lot of players are playing in this field that are using different kind of arrangements, um, but mostly you have at least the solvency requirement that an insurance company has. So, from a cynical perspective, what you will say is, well, surely that leads to failures. And yes, there's been some spectacular failures. I mean, lots of things that really go wrong, where there's, there's, there's loads of people that invested money into insurance and in the end got nothing back for it. I mean, the schemes just failed. But there's always been the successes to balance that. So it's interesting to see what works and what doesn't work. There's a wide variety of models out there. There's a wide variety of products and practices out there just because it's such an open environment. But lastly, the important point there is that innovation thrives in these markets. So we see very interesting things um, happening there. Some of the most interesting things that I've seen across the world happening in health insurance is actually happening in Africa, in places where people are saying, well, how do we address this problem on a pragmatic basis? So what kind of benefits are offered? Maybe just a little bit on the range, and I've given some one or two examples for things that are, for me, interesting and curious because we see, see strange models um, and, and, and innovative models coming across. And one of the, the different ones that I saw was um, a scheme that's in Morocco. Uh, it started off in Jordan. Um, and it's this first one that focuses, it gives a fee per day, a fairly small fee, to cover essentially your business interruption when you are admitted to hospital or clinic or, or some hospital. So the fee you're getting there is not intended to cover the medical expenses. And what is driven here is it's a company that are giving loans to small businesses. And the motivation here was to say that if people have to go to the public facilities, which is where they go, I mean, people in these markets are fairly okay with the public facilities they have, they, don't, they can't be with their business. So many times they're the only person driving this business, and the risk was that they cannot repay the loan. So what they did is to give this medical cover as compulsory. People pay an insurance for it. And because it's a compulsory scheme, there's no waiting periods involved there. Now, it's been a spectacular success. I mean, after two years, they had to increase the cover that they are giving because they were feeling guilty about the level of, of loss ratio that they had. It's also partly an NGO. Um, you get a lot of insurance companies that uh, don't suffer from that guilt, if you want to put it that way. But I mean, these guys said, well, we want to actually give something that makes a difference here. Um, what they are starting to see interesting but on a small scale. You get people that are taking out a loan to get access to the medical benefits there. Um, but they've assured me that it's really, it's on a small scale, it's not really happening there. But just a different way of thinking. It's driven by being able to pay back the loan in the end. Then surgical and hospital cash, I mean, I don't want to spend much time on that. We don't see so much of that. We, 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 see, we see it here and there, but, but actually that's not so much um, the driving factor. 
Um, we have seen um, the opposite, where people say they want cover only for selected surgeries or treatments. So they say, I'm fine with the hospital services that are there, that's given by the government, except if I get cancer. I'm really concerned. Cancer seems to be a real concern across the world. Um, or specific surgeries that are, that are important for people. Um, maternity is, is sometimes one. It's difficult to give maternity on its own for, for obvious reasons. But really just focusing on select surgeries from that side. And then really what we have found is very similar to, to what the LIMS environment or the LIMS research has showed is that you know, the biggest demand or the biggest requirements is on the outpatient services. That's where people focus, where people say, I want to have that properly covered and I want to have access. So sustainability is a real challenge in many of these schemes. So there's so many, so many good schemes that's come out. They start, they get going, they get loads of people on board, and then they just fail, they just implode. So I don't want to talk about the lack of skills. I mean, those are, those are challenges that we see always. Um, things like low administration costs, that's a given. That's an obvious, obvious one there. Um, we have some players, just, just on an aside, that claim that they can give a full administration solution based on mobile telephony for a dollar per month per life. So that's the kind of environment that you're talking about here. I have to say immediately also, that's in a low regulated environment. Um, there's no doubt that regulation adds cost also to, to any system. So um, I want to touch on two things, and that's the two challenges that are, we think are the main ones that, that, that make sustainability difficult in this environment. The one is the cost of care uh, and just the delivery model. And the other one I'll touch on is anti-selection in the next slide. So the cost of care, I mean, what we've seen, and, and this is obvious to anybody that's worked in this market, is that provider networks are essential. Now, the, the hospital room I'm showing on the right-hand side there is obviously not in Africa. You can see the clean, nice lines, the clinical. This is a Swiss hospital, um, and it's a private room, but believe me, the, the luxury in there, I mean, it's not a hotel room, it's a hospital room. Um, but the point is that you don't always need that level of quality and luxury involved there. Um, and, and working with the right providers, therefore, are key in, in any market, actually. But particularly a good example is the, is the Kenyan market, where we have this interesting outpatient challenge. So initially, when I started speaking with insurers in the main insurance market, so the, the standard equivalent to, to what we have in the medical schemes market is actually very active, very alive, strongly growing in, in Kenya. Um, last year was the first year where it became the biggest line of insurance in the whole of of Kenya, it surpassed motor insurance, um, and it's totally voluntary. So, so they always say to me they have a real problem with outpatient. And initially, I thought, well, why outpatient? You you handle that with benefits. It's really the inpatient side you should be concerned about. Um, naive and arrogant coming from the South African market. Um, and the interesting thing in, in Kenya is that GPs are pretty much all of them based in the private hospitals. You don't go to a clinic or to a, to a surgery of the GP, you go to the private hospital to see a GP. Now you go into, into a hospital with your, your toe that you've injured or whatever, you walk out with an MRI scan, lab tests, everything that goes with it, purely because the hospital actually incentivizes the doctor, they actually pay them to get more pathology and radiology done. Um, so <laughs> my immediate answer was, why don't you guys do something different? Why don't you have something outside and other doctors 
But of course, um, it's not that simple. There's only so many doctors available. There's market conditions. People say we don't want to lose market share. All these kind of things happening. Um, but we are seeing players that can disrupt this market because they're thinking differently. So some of the solutions we've seen to this is people putting down primary health clinics on work sites. Nothing new, but, but really saying let's use different players than the doctors, um, using mostly nurse-based care for a big portion of the triage and putting in the doctor when necessary. Nothing new. We've seen that in this market uh, a lot as well. Um, one that we've seen that's interesting is people using mobile telephony and health workers. So health workers is a, is a specific, um, I think they call them clinical technologists, but it's a different, different um, terminology than what we use in South Africa for that. Um, but health workers that are, most of them, um, retired nurses that are gone back to, to the villages and actually want to be active still and want to make a contribution to society. So what this one company has done to keep people essentially outside of the private hospital, because once you go in there, the outpatient cost is incredible. So what they have done is to say, as soon as somebody phones up, you have to phone, they use the mobile telephony network to actually see where is this person that is phoning in. And what they say is, look, um, so we hear this is a problem. Um, within half an hour, we will have somebody at your house. And then they have this network of people that they have contracted with that then can do at least the primary care, which is, in most cases, what it is about. So just looking at it from a different angle and a different network or a different approach to the normal things. There's been a lot of evidence about community-based HMO kind of models. So you have a hospital that's based in a community. The whole community buys into this. They all contribute. It's shown good results. It's shown sustainable results. The challenge is how do you scale that up? So how do you make a whole lot of communities that are all in an HMO base? That's the real challenge that, that nobody has yet as yet soft. But clearly, in a regional area, those models do work well. The other issue around sustainability is anti-selection. Um, it's, it's always nice when people ask questions that lead into your slides and lead into things that you're going to talk a bit later on. And I, I put the point there, voluntary individual cover, seldom sustainable. The only reason why is it's seldom and not never is because I haven't seen all the schemes that are voluntary out there. So otherwise I would have said it's never sustainable. That's, that's, that's the conclusion that we've come to by, by just looking at examples out there. Um, and it's even more the case here, well it is actually more the case in the low income market than in a higher income market. If somebody has very little disposable income, the only reason they're going to buy voluntary medical insurance is because they think they're going to use it. It's a, it's a normal principle. This is far more the case in this market than it is in the normal market that we think of. So it's important to not think from our perspective when we think about these things. I mean, um, actuaries often step into the trap of thinking that everybody else out there think like actuaries. Um, many people don't. Um, but we also um, step into the trap of thinking from our normal environment, our normal framework of how life is. Um, in this environment, it's better to think bottom-up, if I want to put it that way. So I think in terms of people that have no cover at the moment and what they're thinking is in terms of getting to cover. So what we have seen is that if you have group cover and community-based schemes, as we've said, that reduces the anti-selection. Um, how, how extreme is this? Um, we looked at an example of a product in East Africa earlier this year that sold exactly the same product 
to individuals on a voluntary basis and to SMEs. And the loss ratio for the individual was double what the SME market is. It's a pure fact of anti-selection. So, yes, we do not want to exclude people. We do not want to say, well, there's a barrier here. We'll only take people that are in an employment basis. But the reality is if you do not selectively say we will cover just people that are in employment basis, you're going to exclude everybody. Because that's part of the reason why a number of these schemes have actually failed. It's, it's unfortunately, that's the reality. Again, it helps to think from the other way around to say, what you're doing here is not excluding so much people as giving access to people that didn't have access in the past. The, the reality is that there's a big portion of the population in most markets that will not be able to afford private healthcare in any form. That's just uh, it's a sad fact of, of where we are. Then what we've seen is something in between. I mean, where we can say it's a voluntary, but it's not really voluntary. I mean, it's, I call it quasi-compulsory sales. So a good example is, is dairy farmers. In, uh, again, in Kenya, Kenya is actually quite an interesting market. So dairy farmers in Kenya are pretty much small farmers. They have a few cows the guy would have on his own, and he would supply milk to a cooperative that will then supply again milk to to the middle middleman and, and so on and so on. Now, interesting, these cooperatives, I mean, they all are competing to get the milk from these guys. They're actually dependent on them. But they don't really want to pay them more because, I mean, that, that affects their, their financials again. So what we've seen is schemes coming up to say, look, you can have affordable medical cover if you are supplying to me on a regular basis. Um, but to make it work, they actually push that sale very hard. So... Yes, it's voluntary, but there's strong compulsion really to take this up. So, so these guys have a strong incentive to sell it to these guys because, or to the farmers because they want to link them in. So we've seen that work in a kind of a voluntary environment, but, uh, but it's not so voluntary. And then one that's, that's really interesting for us is, is models without premiums. Um, again, in East Africa, what we've seen is uh, tea farmers. So a similar, similar, similar kind of concept that um, you have tea farmers with small pieces of land. They supply tea to the cooperatives and to the collectives. And in this case, what this, uh, they have done is to say, if you supply me an extra two bags per month of top quality tea leaf, then you've got health cover for free. So there's no money flowing hands. Well, not at that level. Clearly, it's monetized back to an insurance company that's behind it. But there's no anti-selection involved, there's no choice, it's a question of, it's a service that's being added, and obviously that's priced in by the cooperative as well. But it's just to say, how do you remove that anti-selection point? Now, those of you that are paying close attention will say to me, that's not um, African farmers out there, so it's so good if you pick that up. I mean, it's just the best picture I could find that is available. It's more Southeast Asia, maybe, maybe North India, um, so I was thinking it's not, it's not totally India. So, so let's get a real picture of India. That's very much India. So, so India is the next market that I want to touch on. And uh, I can't pronounce it, but let's just stick with RSBY, which is a scheme that's been put on. And the reason why I'm using it, I mean, we've been involved with it, so that's, that's why, why we know it. But it's driven by government. So it's a different model. Um, and what happens here is the government uses insurance companies that, that tender for this. 
um, with a reinsurer that gives pooling capacity and, and skill sets, but government essentially pays the largest portion of the premiums and it's faced at people that they call below poverty line, and so people that really earn not much. Um, and government pays a big portion, although the people all have to pay some form of, of cover themselves. They have to pay a premium also. Just quick um, features on that. Um, as I said, government supported. The government actually pushes the enrollment of this. Very strong compulsion from their side because they actually use it as a way to solve the challenge that has been out there. It's, it's not as if India does not have public sector facilities. They do. But they do see the need of enhancing that and adding private to that as well. So I'm going to go in too much into the details. Essentially, it's hospital-based care and a specific list of of out-of-hospital treatments or, or, or daycare procedures that's, that's, that's out there. Um, it includes pre-existing conditions, uh, interesting, but with a strong push from the government side, you have a high proportion of people actually enrolling. Um, and in the end, it's cashless, um, and you have an IT solution in place, biometrics, all these principles that are, that are important to put it there um, and to make it sustainable. So what are some of the initial impacts and learnings. Um, what happened here, I mean, in two, in, uh, the, the, the important part is that there's a, a real improvement in the access to healthcare. So you have uh, literally millions enrolled. Um, now, India is just a different scale. There you will have a state that's got 50 million people just in this specific state. So, so there's different kind of sizes that we're talking about, but also different quantums. I mean, to give you an idea, the premium that these people are paying is the equivalent of I think it's 50 euro cents per year. So 50, 50 cents, South African cents per month. Um, and it actually works um, also because the treatment is a lot cheaper in India. But still, just the volumes of people that help with that. Um, what we're seeing is that hospitals are now being set up in remote areas by the private sector also. There's now a market. It actually makes it worth their while to actually put something down. Um, public sector hospitals are also now competing. They're also improving their offering to, to have a part of this, of this cake. So improvements all around for people. Even in the extremist areas um, where you have extremist activities, it seems to work because in the end, healthcare is a basic need. It goes across lines of, of religion and, and uh, politics and all those kind of things. It works even in those, in those areas. Very important to have good IT systems and biometric systems to make sure it works. Fraud is always an element that you, that you have to think of. Um, data analysis, also very important, because you get very strange things happening, unintended things. Um, one example, in, in one of these areas, they, they suddenly see, saw a dramatic increase in um, hysterectomies. So this was unexpected. Why, why would you see an increase in hysterectomies happening? And when they investigated, they found out that the doctors were essentially using hysterectomies as birth control. Um, so we would say, wow, that's, that's very extreme. But there's a cultural element as well, because it solves um, in the society there some other issues that the women have anyway. It, it sort of empowers them. Now, clearly, and on the one side, I mean, financially, that's not a, not a good model. But also for the women, the health of the women, was, it was also an issue on that side. So you need to be able to pick these things up. But again, that's nothing new to, to this audience. I mean, you need to track medical insurance no matter in what market you are. You need to be able to see what is happening because things change a lot and change quickly. 
Then a bit about Turkey. This is very new recent developments. So I have to start off by saying I don't have too much details. Um, and I was even considering not including it on the basis that I don't have so much details. Um, but I thought it's interesting enough that I do want to put it down with what we have. So let's talk about Turkey's financing here. Now this is statistics from the World Health Organization. Just touching on what are the sources of financing. And this is Europe um, as a comparison. Just as an interesting one, you'll see there's a whole range of models applying in Europe, um, and Europe is often for us a nice um, example to use to illustrate that different models can actually do the same thing. But, but that's a different topic, and I don't want to sidetrack myself here. Um, so let's focus on, on Turkey there. If you see it's a gray bar, it's mostly a state finance system. So Turkey has got a government um, security system that funds, private, that funds healthcare, in um, mostly public facilities, but also a few private facilities that are contracted. So an NHI, if you want to call it that way, um, but maybe I won't call it that because I'm actually being in dangerous territory if I, if I go there. But, but in, in principle, it's a state-funded system that comes out of, out of a dedicated um, tax that's going for, a dedicated payment that people make. The interesting thing is, if you, if you look at the at the pink part there, that's, that's private insurance. It's very, very small. You can see there. It's very, but look at that. This is out-of-pocket expenditure. So you have a government-funded system. By, by nature of out-of-pocket expenditure, it has to be in the private sector. I mean, in the public sector, you've got coverage. So you don't, let's forget the means test payments. But in principle, most of that is out of the private sector. So we've said that we have um, healthcare that's provided by state to everybody, yet around 18% of the population also use private healthcare from time to time. So there's a demand. That's a reality. So the, the interesting thing for me about people in Turkey, they seem to be fairly pragmatic. They said, um, I'm sure there was a lot of political debate first and a lot of principle debate around it, but in the end they said, well, how do we solve this problem? So you have this private medical environment that's very expensive, mostly um, top employers that just give it to their staff. Um, you have some people buying critical illness products just to cover them if there's something really bad happening to get better access. What they have done is they've put on a framework, and this is an important principle. Um, they've taken the approach of saying, let's put on a framework to cover this gap in between. And what I find interesting here is that it's on the basis, and, and Christopher has, has referred to that, that you know, it's, it's a framework to say what is legal, what is acceptable, as opposed to saying what is not, and what should we make exceptions for. So this is the, the approach they've taken, and they've put on broad rules. I mean, the, the interesting measure that they've used to say how do we keep it to the lower income people is that they've said that you may not give coverage in A-level hospitals. Now, A-level hospitals in, in Turkey is the top quality hospitals with all the good care and good facilities and looking good. B-level hospitals are private hospitals still, but they're not the top level and the top range there. So they've actually limited by what, what facilities you have access to. This product may not be sold or may not give cover to the A-level facilities. They do allow copays, limits, and pre-existing conditions. So again, things are put in place to protect the insurance environment because it's acknowledged that this is covering additional benefits to just the state part. Um, now, that is a whole debate 
and I've seen many opposing views on that. Again, these people are coming from a state system at the moment. They are going to the private sector and essentially paying 100% co-payment because it's all coming out of pocket. So having a co-payment in place is not necessarily um, bad on these people, but it does make a difference in terms of utilization patterns that's coming out there. Um, and then they, they have kind of broad principles to say it shouldn't jeopardize government's finance position. But now I would love to give you more about that, how that works, um, but that's, that's kind of the principles behind that. And from what we understand, you have to approve your product um, and, and, and the government will then look at it and say, well, okay, we don't think it will selectively take people out of other places. I think, I think that's, the, that's the principle behind it. Unfortunately, not more information, um, but it's already getting going. I mean, um, the first quarter of this year, 55,000 policies have already been sold. Not huge numbers, but it's starting to get going. Um, on the right-hand side there, I've just put in a, a benefit design that we've seen there. Um, if, you, if you can read that, you've got very good optical benefits on your medical scheme, um, but, but hopefully later on you can open this up and look at it. But interesting there, 60% co-payments on your normal ambulatory treatment. So only 40% is covered. Huge co-payments there, limits, but again, some of the other things are really unlimited coverage. There's things added in here that you don't get in the public sector. Dental is one specific, and part of the product requirement is you have to cover dental, so it has to cover some supplementary insurance that's also there. But the important point here for me is they've taken the approach of saying, let's put a framework in place that covers this section in the middle because there's clearly demand for it. People are paying the money anyway at the moment. Let's structure it in a way. And then lastly, I want to talk quickly about Brazil. Um, now, as I said, Brazil is very, it's got a lot of similarities with South Africa. Um, Emil, um, I don't know if Emil is still here. Um, but when he said this morning, you know, there are some things where we cannot be excited about. Um, and then he pointed out that we've got 11% medical inflation. And I was thinking, yes, you can be excited about that. Because in Brazil, it is 18% medical inflation. So, so that is, yes, I mean, the currency is, is devaluing at the moment. But that's against inflation that's now in the order of 8%. So a much, much bigger part those two. So this medical inflation in the private sector environment that they have. So let's quickly talk about Brazil. Brazil has got a public sector system that covers everybody. In Brazil's case, it comes out of your, of your taxes, so fairly good coverage in many places, particularly out of hospital is the big challenge here. People have a real struggle to get consultations. Um, as, as an extreme example, um, in the district of Sao Paulo, the average waiting time to get an appointment for, neurological, for a neurological appointment is 248 days. So, so that's, that's the average. So, so against that background, a lot of people are simply using private sector on an ad hoc basis. And you have around 25% of the population that are on PMI. Now, with inflation rates and the PMI side being so much more Sorry, private medical, the PMI is just our standard term for, for private medical insurance. Um, and despite having premium rate increases of 18, 20%, that market is slowly but surely just increasing in size. And the main reason is, of course, that the public sector alternative is just so much of a not acceptable alternative that people are buying the private sector. 
And let's be frank, that's uh, the same reason why people are buying the private sector in South Africa. Um, it is a question of, and let's not go into if it's a reality or perception, the perception at least is that the public sector quality is just not up to the same standard. But there's a big demand um, and, and, and a huge port of the population, portion of the population that actually has some funding available. But we actually see nothing. So in Brazil, you have strong regulations about the private medical side. Um, you can risk rate. You don't have the principle of community rating. You don't have open enrollment. But you do have a minimum benefit requirement, a very extensive minimum benefit requirement. Um, it pretty much covers everything, and it has to be comprehensive. But just that minimum benefit requirement means that the entry level into that market is very expensive. So there's no framework in place for low-income medical schemes. And there's also no activity that we have come across from the insurers that are going into the low-income space. They're effectively excluded by the very regulations that are there to protect people in the private sector um, from, from abuse. What we do see is that some of the private clinic groups are making plans to, to fill that gap. So you now have clinics that are focused specifically, and I'm saying clinics now, it's more like group practices that are focused specifically on this section of the market. Um, they do basic surgeries also in there, um, but it works on a fee-for-service basis. You come in, but they have fairly low fees, and they focus specifically on that market. And the frustration that they have is how do they go about to help people fund the visits that they have? Because people are saying to them, I want to be able to put money away on a regular basis. Now, there's ways and means of doing it, um, but the principle is that the insurance framework or the, or the private medical framework there actually makes it difficult for people to do anything on the low-income space. And for me, Brazil is a lesson of what we must be careful of in South Africa in terms of addressing that need. So what is the right methodology? What is the right way of approaching this market? Um, the next slide shouldn't be a surprise. I mean, it depends. I mean, I, my first heading was it, it depends, but I thought, no, that's a bit, bit corny. Um, so the, the principle is that different markets have different needs. I mean, we have to be clear about that. You, in the one market, it's very important to have outpatient benefits. The other market, the inpatient benefit is there. And if I'm saying markets, that's the case also in South Africa. You have different markets, and if you are thinking in terms of the existing medical schemes market, and you want to say you want to apply exactly the same things to the low-income market, you run the risk that you will not have a sustainable environment purely because you are trying to put too much into it, and then it doesn't come off the ground. So there's no standard recipe, but some of the ingredients just seem to work better to, to get a good result in the end. Um, compulsory membership, I'm, I'm sorry, that's just a sad reality of, of what we are seeing. Um, that's, that's the nature of anti-selection. As I said, more important in this market than anywhere else. The correct delivery model is very important. That's not too different from the standard medical schemes environment, but here it's even more important um, in the sense that it makes or breaks the product. And then monitoring of experience. As we've said, as in all other lines of business you need to, or as in all other medical insurance markets, you need to monitor experience very, very clearly. And then from what we have seen, um, it's important for the regulatory framework to enable this market if it wants to be there. So um, you've seen examples where there's no 
regulation or very light regulation. You've seen examples where there's very heavy regulation, but the principle that we are seeing where it seems to be working is if there's an enabling framework. That, that seems to be um, what, is, what is working at the moment. In the end, I mean, if we want to get this market to work and if you want to get all those fishes caught, I mean, there's many players that need to work together. You need the providers involved, you need regulators involved, you need insurers involved, and everybody needs to work together to be able to open this market. Any questions? It's always bad to speak before lunch. Thanks, Alex. Thanks for a great talk, Willem. Nice to have you back. Um, I have a question that, that you touched on really at the end in your conclusion about the provider side of the, the healthcare market. So it is, and healthcare, what's interesting to me about healthcare is it's not like other insurance markets where there's a, there's a fascinating business side or commercial side or, or healthcare side. A uh, whole big industry uh, and professional capability, uh, infrastructure, etc., that exists over which the you know, health insurance pool um, operates. Um, now, you spoke about different maturity levels of regulation on health insurance, et cetera, in Africa and other countries. I'd be very keen to um, get your view on sort of the varying state of those from a provider point of view. Um, and I mean, we know the kind of battles we face here in a very mature market, as you said. We have like tariff codes, but we, we're moaning that they're out of date and not maintained. But I, I imagine that in other markets, there aren't even those kind of standard billing code structures, et cetera, clinical coding, all of the things that we like to play with over here. Um, well, 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 let's touch on the last point you made. Yes, in, in a majority of markets, you don't have detailed coding. And I'm talking more now about Africa and, and, and those kind of areas. Um, what we see in some markets that you have players coming in from the TPA side, essentially putting down a coding framework and then creating the market for insurance side. But in terms of providers, um, generally they're not regulated. Um, people are saying, well, these are doctors, these are people that you know, trust. I mean, it's, it's, a, uh, it's, it's a part that's, that's not regulated, um, but that I actually believe should be regulated um, because it, it opens, again, that principle of arbitrage. Um, so, so let's take this last example in Brazil. You have a system here where you've got a clinic that are now working in a clinic group that are putting down an insurance product. Um, and because of the way they structure it, essentially they are putting down an insurance product whereas an insurer cannot do that because they're not a medical clinic, they're an insurer, and therefore bound by other, other principles. But no, I mean, the, the, the majority of cases, the provider side is not really regulated. And I, and I do believe where providers are taking risk that there should be some level of, of regulation, at least about solvency requirements or some fallback principle behind it. Thank you, Havilam, so nice to see you. Yeah. Um, I've just been thinking about the thorny issue of the non-healthcare costs um, that Paresh mentioned also in his talk. And I guess the, um, the, the problem is when you evaluate them in, in absolute terms as opposed to percentage terms, you know, they can, even though they might be small in absolute terms, they can be large in percentage terms. Um, and I guess the question I have is just your experience in terms of how you evaluate you know, reasonable um, non-healthcare costs because a big part of keeping the, the co total cost of cover down is having good management in place. True. I mean, I, I think it's a question of balance always. So it's, it's, it's a function of where is the cost going to? Now, now we see loads of examples, unfortunately, where a good portion of the healthcare cost is simply brokerage fees. Um, it's incredible 
Um, and we see that a lot in hospital cash kind of environments, um, even surgical cash, where you've got a premium that's 100 and maybe 40 or 30% of it is going towards claims. And they're just all these players in the chain that are taking their bit out of it. I mean, and um, there's, there's moral issues around that for me, just in terms of saying, well, is there really value to the end customer? So it's, it's really a question of where is it going to? Is it going to things that are really managing it? But then, as with any product, you have to say, what is the value that you're getting for your money? So if you have management in place, does it really make a difference in terms of, of the savings? Um, some costs, as I said, do add... Um, well, it's, it's, it's a balance always. I mean, so, so I made the comment of saying that regulation adds, adds cost, but regulation also gives protection. So it's, it's, again, it's a balance. So you need to find the balance between not adding so much cost to the regulation that you make it unsustainable, but again, having enough regulation in place that you protect the environment and protect the people inside it. Um, but generally we say, well, what is the value that you're getting for it? There's not, a, not an absolute level or term from that perspective. I don't know, have I answered your, your question? Yeah, I'm sorry, I mean, I don't have an answer. The, I don't, and nobody has an answer on that. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll stick with that one. <laughs> Maybe I'll just say something quickly. Um, my impression in the low-cost area is you need the scale because non-healthcare expenses have to be low. But the amount of activity to manage those costs in an open enrollment kind of environment is massive. It's much higher than any other option. So mm. if you're doing managed care in a low-cost area, it is much more intense than any other area. So it's a very careful balance, and scale is quite important. It is, and efficiency is extremely important. So, so, so the way you're doing it, the cheapest way of doing it, I mean, we see, we see many pragmatic solutions to say, well, yes, this is managed care, but we can't do it in this way. We'll do it in a, I don't want to say a quick and dirty way, but in a very, very efficient way to be able to solve that. I mean, now, that's another reason why group recovery is more attractive from this environment, just because of the scale that you get in there um, and that it's easier to manage through an employer than on an individual basis as well. Sarah. Uh, Sarah Bennett from MedScheme. Um, I love the story about RSBY, and I think I heard uh, Paul Murray talk about this, that case study at the IAHS conference in Hong mm -hmm. Kong a few years back. And, and certainly I think in terms of the lessons learned for South Africa, I think that one is... Um, very relevant. So, but what I wanted to know is, um, you mentioned India is very diverse. Is this the way India is going? Because I've also heard lots of case studies of microinsurance, which is more led by um, the people themselves. And how and how much did the government consult with the with the population in terms of setting benefits? Can you tell us a bit more? Um, in the last one, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how much consultation was. I don't know the details around how the government came to it. In terms of the first one, you're very much correct that India is extremely diverse. Um, this was in one specific state that this model worked like that. There are similar models in other states. Um, then you have cases where states are doing a purely state-funded system, so kind of a, a national health system in that state. Um, and then you have other states, again, trying microinsurance. So India is is an experimental um, area for, for all these kind of things. It's a, it's a fascinating, fascinating market just to look at, just to see all the different approaches to it. So yeah, very right. This is not the, the standard way, um, because I don't think there is a standard way in India. That's the, that's the short answer. Um, what you do see in India is efficiency. Um, we, were, we were listening earlier in terms of that you can do some things in a very quick way, some procedures. Um, 
you have um, open heart surgery that are done on a very quick and efficient way. People that are doing seven angiograms a week, no, sorry, a day, I mean, that, that are literally they're set up. Um, and uh, your first reaction may be that, wow, you know, that's just a, a quick rush job. I mean, the, the flip side of is it is that the surgeon that's doing those procedures have seen everything. They know it, their hands are fantastic. They've done this operation so many times, they automatically know what to do with it. Um, and a colleague of mine um, that is from India um, recently injured his knee in Switzerland, and he was actually considering going to India to get the knee surgery because his concern was that the Swiss, the Swiss um, surgeon has only done you know, two or three a year of these, of these surgeries. Volumes in the end also means skills that are coming there. <laughs> um, thanks, Willem.